As 2018 draws to a close, consider including the podcast in your end-of-year giving. You can do so online at paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast or by mail. The Permaculture Podcast. P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. Where has our relationship with money and capital gone wrong, as individuals and as a society? What do we have to do to get right with that relationship? In the last interview of the year, co-host David Bilbrey sits down with Joel Solomon to examine those questions and talk about how we can change the dominant economic system. To cover all that requires a wide-ranging discussion that includes wealth, politics, the commons, consciousness, care for those around us, and much more. Since David gives Joel a good introduction, let's get started, and I'll join you again after with the closing notes. Hi, this is David Bilbrey with EcoThinkIt.com and the Permaculture Podcast. And my guest today is Joel Solomon, co-author of The Clean Money Revolution and is co-founder and chair of Renewal Funds, which is Canada's largest mission venture capital firm at $98 million of investing in organics and envirotech. And uh, Joel and I met at the Region 18 conference and had about a 20-minute conversation, which was definitely too short for me anyway. Uh, we had a lot more to talk about. So here we are for a longer form interview. Uh, if you'd like to check out the first interview, it is episode 1817. So welcome, Joel. Thanks for having me back, David. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed our conversation there and uh, the beginnings of your book that I've read. And uh, so I'm really looking forward to, to learning more about you and, and what you're doing. One of the things I really liked, uh, it was the vision, the vision statement on the Renewal Funds website. So I'm going to read that briefly. Um, Renewal launched in 1994 with a 50-year strategy and a 500-year vision to influence and support a shift from maximum financial return at any planetary cost economy to one based on the health of communities and in which ecosystems are integrated into economic activities that prioritize the long-term well-being of future generations. So a couple things I really like there. One is the 500-year vision, because to create this more beautiful world that our hearts know is possible, we really do have to get past the quarterly stock report way past. So um, yeah, I, I really appreciate your framework and, and sort of paradigm you're operating from. And, uh, you know, to get started, I would love for you to, to read a quote that I pulled out of your book, Clean Money Revolution. So go ahead. It's always fun to find out what I wrote. Imagine our world three generations from now, the world of your great-grandchildren. The seeds planted in cities like Vancouver have taken root and proliferated. Industrial activity works to decarbonize the atmosphere and stabilize the climate. The oceans have been cleaned of the horrific plastic gyres now poisoning them. Farming mimics, restores, and enhances natural ecosystems. Renewable energy, smart transit, and, quote, living buildings are the norm. Population has stabilized at a sustainable level. We have an economy that serves both people and planet, with everyone's basic needs being met, and abundant opportunities for meaningful work. Goods are produced in a closed-loop production cycle, and the concept of waste no longer exists. Nature heals itself as we take off the pressure. It's a world of true security, no longer deeply divided between haves and have-nots. This is the potential of the clean money revolution that is starting to rumble through our economy. 
Thank you. That's an excellent uh, way to set things up for today. So before we talk about a revolution in money, um, let's talk about just money itself. What is it? How do you define money? I think it's a means for exchange. Uh, I think from somewhere back near the beginning of people, I can only speculate about what that was like, but eventually people lived in different areas and we had different uh, things that nature provided in those different areas or that people were able to create from things they found in nature. So I've got salt and you've got copper. We can haul copper, we can haul salt, but eventually we get to the point where we want something that represents the value. And so money grew from giving us a convenient way to have a piece of something or a shell or you know something that was considered precious that we exchanged to uh, represent value and uh, that value could be used by the person who received it for something else. So that's that's how I think it happened. And when you take that forward into uh, we go from thousands of people to millions of people to billions of people, money has now become taken down to piece of paper, some digital uh, symbols, and uh, it, it continues to be a means for exchange. If we believe in it and we all support it and it's backed by powerful uh, institutions like governments, it becomes a substitute for tangible items so that we don't have to haul around uh, bags of food on our back to trade with. So money has become that practical thing that allows us to exchange. The other part about money is it's taken on a spiritual dimension and it's in many ways become the currency of meaning and purpose in life. And what I consider almost a religion of money has now started to dominate human consciousness and the desire for it and the power that can come from it is uh, becoming in charge of uh, the human spirit far too much. There's some thoughts on from the beginning to today. Yeah, it, it is amazing uh, the dynamics involved in money, and there really are a lot of non-tangible <laughs> spiritual dynamics that I don't think of a lot of people are mindful of. I know I wasn't before six or seven years ago either. So helping to define that and, and <laughs> acknowledging that there is this reality beyond just the day-to-day -day struggle to get it, deciding how to spend it or waste it is, is very important. How do you see our relationship with money? I guess, for, first of all, the dysfunctional you know version and then what a healthy relationship might look like. I appreciate that adjustment. Because the starting place is it's it's become very disembodied and we don't remember anymore exactly where it came from. And that bothered me as a younger person trying to figure out meaning and purpose of life. And it was clear that I even, even I'm, I'm now in my 60s, but even 50 years ago, uh, we were well into the era where a central focus of money, at least in society I grew up in, which is the United States, was that I need it for my security, and its effect becomes a central focus of of life. So the accumulation of it, or the, the acquiring of it, the accumulation, the protecting of it, the obsessing about it, 
you know, first there's survival, then there's getting comfort, then I can get fancier and uh, be indulged with money. And then at some point, I've got more than enough. And we seem to have turned into a time where more than enough is not enough. <laughs> and the only enough is, in, is infinite. So that's where I, I, I look and I say, well, money's become the dominant religion on the planet now that if we go back to people who are struggling to survive and put a roof over their homes and feed their kids, I, it's completely understandable, and I have no judgment whatsoever about that. But those of us that live in lands of plenty and have privilege because of maybe skin color, gender, where we to university, how, who our parents are, things like that, it becomes kind of a, of a sickness that the accumulation of money becomes the meaning of life. So that's the challenge part. Well, now what do we need to do about that? If we have become lost in the pursuit and the lust for it, first of all, we need to think about at whose expense does it come? I've got some cash in my pocket right now. I've got some credit cards. I've got a bank account. My name is on that money now. And where I spend it, what I do with it, how I share it, how I use it to control things, gain more things... My name's on that also. The problem with it is that we've become detached from where it actually came from, from what it did to people and places, or what it does to people and places while we hold it in bank accounts and savings and things like that. So what money can be is a powerful tool for making the world that meets our highest vision, values, meaning, and purpose. If it's a representation of people's labor and extraction or use of sources, and we treat it as a holy substance, maybe a spiritual substance, but uh, something that, that is the most precious thing that's around, then we've got to deal with human emotions, a fear, which can turn into greed and uh, confusion and unclarity about life, which causes us to be afraid and, and uh, seek more security through having more money. If we start to ask the question and answer the question of how much is enough, what do I need truly? If I'm going to be, let's say I'm going to be very affluent about that, and so I'm going to add up all the things I think I need to do to take care of family, my own future, uh, health, what happens when I'm old, I don't want to be a burden to people. So those of us that have the most advantages really should consider naming a number to ourselves. So, I guess I'm in the transition between where, where has it gone wrong and where do we get to. But where we need to get with it is, if this is, this is the most precious substance on the planet because it represents, effectively, take some kind of exploitation of people and place, then we need to use it to be regenerative, to protect the soil, which is what's going to keep people alive for generations to come to look after the atmosphere, to look after the balance of, uh, of nature and just be sure we don't damage it further, to we ought to be thinking about the politics of money and what is fair taxation, what's the role of government in providing basic social safety net and looking after the care and tending of those core aspects that enable people to thrive on this planet and also enable it to be done in a fair way so that as population grows and there are more and more of us and we get more and more successful as a species, 
that we're wiser and more intelligent, not just fatter and sassier. So, money has the possibility to turn around most of the problems that we face, not all, but most, and we need to mobilize it and we should get our act together and be sure that future generations have uh, at least as good a life as we do. So, in our last conversation, we talked a little bit about um, flow and the importance of money continuing to move versus being put in huge stacks. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. Think about uh, sometimes I'm in a room of people and I pull some money out of my pocket and I talk a little bit about where did it come from and I don't, you know, how many people did it touch. But then I point out, if you look in a room of people at the financial transactions, the way money moves around, you could look at your circle, you could look at your community, and you start thinking about the fact that money actually can help a lot of people if it keeps moving. If you accumulate it in a big pile, it starts to stagnate. And even though that pile may be invested in something, if it's invested in things that are doing damage and destruction, well, you're, you're responsible, and uh, that's not so good. But if we were to look at it as a fluid substance, an energy form, it's basically embodied energy, and we keep that energy moving around in fair, transparent, and generative ways, it's an incredibly powerful positive, potentially. That's our job to figure that out. What do you say to people who are concerned or overly concerned about sort of the idea of, of fairness going towards some kind of, a, in their perspective, an unhealthy form of socialism, which is probably the only idea about socialism they may have. How do you create an equitable and fair world where it still, still has the freedom of, I guess, a free market and the you know, degree of meritocracy and all those things that are so valuable to us in the West and especially as Americans? Yeah, you're asking some, these questions are getting bigger, but I enjoy them. So a comment here is, what's happened to our ability to understand the bigger meaning of life? I believe that that's where global world religions came from. As we start to wonder and get curious and things happen, you know, you look up, you look up at the stars, you, you look at the seasons, you see animal migration patterns, you, you know when food can grow, when not. So those are basic human as a species interacting with the ecosystem and understanding it better. So now we've created a whole bunch of human constructs to advance civilization or advance human success as a species. So probably almost everyone listening to this podcast share some kind of thought of, okay, we didn't really design well for 7 billion people. When I was born, there was still, we were down in the three billion zone, three and a half billion. And there's definitely people listening to this podcast that are going to see 10 billion. So then the industrial revolution comes and technology comes and we get smarter and smarter and smarter. But what happened to values and moral and ethical judgments? So global world religions came out of that, various kinds of spirituality to answer those questions and supposedly be the interpreters and the guides for these deeper questions. Well, to a degree, they became their own commercial enterprises because they offer the opportunity. You give a share, you know, tithe or you 
you contribute to your priests, and uh, they need buildings and homes and you know, all that kind of stuff. And then they want to do some good in the world. They want to feed people, so they raise a bunch of money, et cetera. Okay, so those are, those are the first place that I look to for some responsibility because they gain a lot of allegiance from people, and I don't think they're doing a good job at helping us with these questions you and I are talking about. Second is education systems. So if we're, if we're in societies that are fortunate enough, and maybe, maybe it's the word is advanced enough, that we have public education systems and then higher education systems, public and private. Back to, again, the religions tend to have their own forms of this as well. Well, are those institutions, what are they based on? And what are their goals? Well, they become commercial enterprises as well. They want to do scientific research. They've got to raise money from government or corporations. So as you go through and you try to look at where are we going to get moral and ethical guidance and where will we become higher-minded and see money as the incredibly powerful substance that it is to be used in a good way, we don't have institutions right now that are actually supporting us in this, which means we default to popular culture, to television and models that help gain viewership or keep people engaged or longing for something. And so you go across society, you look at these circumstances, and you see that we're very short now on where might a child, how will a child, how will the next billion children learn about money, what it is, and why, and what's the right way to handle it. It's a very powerful and potent substance. Sometimes I think it's the most toxic substance on the planet. If it's concentrated too heavily, those who hold it the most tightly often find it damages themselves and those they love the best. And so we are walking around without uh, the right guidance to know how to handle this, this incredible substance. It brings up so much because now, okay, so now you've brought education into it. And as with our economy and our economic system and our political system, our educational system has been infiltrated and formed and influenced strongly by, I guess, special interests, if you will. I mean, what's being taught in a school in the United States or even probably Canada, although I don't know, Canada might be a little better especially in the, in the realm of economics, has an incredible amount of baggage and very specific skew and, and worldview and, and sort of thought system that has led us to this place of uh, you know, 2008 with the economic sort of almost collapse and a system now that really has not moved very far past that. And the only thing we know is that the next time that happens, the numbers will be so big that the the you know the ability for the government to bail out the people who caused the problem will not be uh, will not just won't be possible so reeducating first of all us as adults but also actually forming a educational system that will educate people i like the, what the waldorf uh, people say that to you know the goal of education is to create whole human beings that's a very different um, goal than educating people to be workers for 40 hours a week for 40 years. You know, the other part you asked me is, what do we do about these uh, free market people and, and believe in don't slow down the spirit of human initiative and things like that? I'm okay with human initiative. I'd like people to think about the commons as the first priority. But 
great to get some incentive to be to throw yourself into something that matters. The problem is we're lost and wandering around in the forest, lost, without clarity of meaning and purpose. So if meaning and purpose is about accumulating the most possible money before you die, then that's one model. And that's the one that we're unfortunately far too engaged in now. But what if meaning and purpose was about devoting ourselves to the best possible long-term sustainable society for this species to live in? What's the smartest way to be a successful human species? What's the smartest way to organize cities, education, religion, all of those components? The people who take that role in society now, I can't really speak to past history, but it seems that they don't get, they don't get much glory. Those who get glory are actually the, the greediest and most selfish. Now, some of them might have started out because they work in a system where they came up with a scientific invention that actually helps people. Maybe it's medicine in some way, actually helps people. But there's nothing to catch them other than possibly the religions or peer pressure or their own inner work to know what to do with the power that follows that. So free market, sure, as long as the point is to make things better for everyone. And now i got to go to politics a little bit, which is if we had truly fair taxation, then we can have a healthy commons that takes care of the needs of everyone. And if there's some room for incentive to have a, a better garden, so to speak, I'm looking at my garden right now, but you know that's, that's probably too simplistic for the libertarian uh, capitalist, but uh, to be able to enjoy enough of your success, but to understand that your success came on the backs of other people and on the back of other species and the planet itself. So the U.S. had apparently, was it 80 or 90% income tax at one point? Whatever it is, we just experienced the biggest tax heist in history in America. There was a rationale put on it that somehow this is going to help everybody. It's going to help all the, the citizens. That's baloney. We're stripping away social services. We're making it harder and harder. On, here, here's African Americans in the U.S. have savings that I believe is on average, the average wealth of African American community is 25000 It's possible it's even lower than that. Caucasians have got... I think it's 100 and a quarter, 150,000 average. Taxation and social services can rebalance all of that. So the problem is that those with the most power are now influencing those systems to gain further power. Problems and the challenges are obvious. I see things that to me look obvious. Question is, what do we do about it? So what do we do about it? Well, we have to be active citizens. So let's start with the political part. If we ignore politics, it is to our own peril and the peril of our children. If we conclude cynically, if we get, if we get influenced by the forces that cultivate us to be cynical, not trust anyone, and to have some kind of ideal of perfection, and to those of you that might even still feel this way, that Hillary was 
as bad as Trump? I mean, I, I just plea with you to rethink about that, to understand that politics, because of the way the system is designed, that we have elections that everyone gets to vote in, but we also allow infinite amount of money to influence those elections. We're getting manipulated like really innocent uh, puppets. And if you can't see that a centrist, <laughs> even a corporate centrist, whose goal is to maintain stability of a system versus having a madman holding the most powerful office in the, in the world, and that those two are actually the same, and that if politicians aren't perfect, that you're either not going to vote or you're going you're gonna to invest your vote in obscure candidates that don't have any chance to win. Okay, I've made my point there, and I've probably, probably uh, annoyed some, some listeners. But the fact is, we better take politics seriously, and more of us better get into it, and we better figure out how to be pragmatic enough to deal with the complexity of all the different opinions and points of view that have now gotten created over time. We've lost a central narrative about what's a good life and how should we do this together. So there's one area. And then the next area is what are we going to do with our lives? Do we become cynical and just say, oh, well, the heck with it. I'm going to get mine and I don't care about everybody else. Well, that's not going to lead us anywhere good. So what do we do about it is we get involved. We do our practices. We learn how to understand our own origin, what drives us, and how we can be the best possible person and how we can step into our core responsibility, which is that we're the architects and the ancestors of what the next 10 generations are going to have to deal with. If that central thought, my job is to be the best possible ancestor for everybody, I think that uh, we'd have a much better chance. That's a really great perspective the architects and ancestors for the next 10 generations. So I guess one of the things that comes up for me as you're talking is I think about a conversation, actually it was a podcast um, by a guy named Rob Bell, and he was talking about politics and what they actually are, not what they are now in, the, in Washington, D.C., but like politics really is just community of people trying to create you know, a framework and a stru social structure so that everyone can live peacefully and, and have their needs met. And so learning how to communicate, work through differences, all of those things are essential or you don't have a culture or a community or a nation. And so getting a really basic understanding for that, I think probably is one of the first steps to getting anybody to want to be involved in or re-engage in politics. I grew up, I was a teenager in, in the 80s, graduated college in 91, and my generation, it was all just, it was hard to even want to be engaged, at least for my circle of friends, because it just felt like they were all, it was always the lesser of the two idiots as far as presidential elections. <laughs> I'm talking for my 20-year-old self. And so, I was never taught anything about what politics actually are, what it really takes to create a a community or a society in a way that I could understand it. And so until we start there with what is politics, I guess essentially it's a form of communication and structuring of society. And then how do you set 
proper focus and framework for what creates a safe and thriving society. So one of them you mentioned a second ago is the commons, which I'll have you talk a little bit more about that. But, you know, understanding the whole system, the earth, what helps the earth and its ecosystems to thrive, what people have lived in the past uh, who have lived in peace for the longest periods of time and why, what can we learn from them to create or help reform our current societies? You know, actually just, you could start with just learning from the past and who's succeeded and who's failed. Most major civilizations that were, that had a, a great deal of wealth went down for this, for the same reason, typically related to poor agricultural practices where they just destroyed the soil and eventually destroyed the, the society. And so there's just a lot of things we can learn from the past. <laughs> and then uh, uh, very important also is, and we talked about this a little bit last time is, how do you really drop down to a deeper level below the intellectual mind and all the noise and all of the patterns of the past and preconceptions into a deeper place? Otto Scharmer calls it presencing, but just dropping down into a, the, the deeper place of, of our true selves and sensing together what, what, as Otto says, the emerging future that wants to be manifest is. How do we really make decisions from a deeper place than just sound bites and, and all the worries and fears swirling around in our own brains? So with that set up, um, what is the commons? Can you talk a little bit more about that and why it's important? Well, the commons, my interpretation of that is it's the space that we share that effectively now is the whole planet because uh, you know the butterfly flaps it flaps its wings and it, and you know one thing affects the next and the next and so we're in this together. We depend on the atmosphere, we depend on the soil, we depend on the uh, well, we depend on having some sun and and certain key basics like that. And so, well, in my belief, once I understand that, then my first priority is to take care of those things. And they're derivatives. I mean, I can't, there's, I don't know how I'm going to take care of the sun. But if you follow that train, like soil, I can, I can understand how I can take care of it or I can damage it pretty directly. So those things that you take away humans and then you put humans on planet Earth. So all the features of planet Earth are the first part of the commons. That's the natural world. Then you create human societies and you get more population and you live together in towns or villages or cities and then it grows bigger from there. So you start to establish uh, certain kinds of structures and that's back to the churches, the, the financial institutions, the, uh, the educational institutions, the, the uh, trading institutions, things like that. So those are what the commons is made up of, the things that evolve from our species that enable us to all share this place together. Now, who's going to regulate the commons and take care of it or look after it? Well, if we're just warlords protecting our tribe and our valley and our nation, and we think we're separate from everybody else, and our job is to fight them off, and we'll worry about the cosmic questions uh, another day, or we'll come up with a, with a philosophy that justifies whatever we, it is we want to do. So then we're given human consciousness. We actually, I mean, where did that come from in the plant kingdom? I, you know, I can speculate. But we're given this thing, which is consciousness, which I think is about self-awareness. Like we, we realize we exist and we, 
realize we're in a relationship with places and people and nature, and we make choices. So if we multiply that up to, again to the 10 billion people that are going to be here shortly and our behaviors are throwing off the climate and they're making water more difficult and air, arability more difficult and things like that, what kind of leadership does it take, what kind of insight does it take to rally the species to move back into long-term thinking? Well, I, because your podcast got the word permaculture in it, I'm, I'm going to assume that most of us here are fairly idealistic, even if we're pragmatic idealists. And we, we think that we're devoting our lives. We have, we have chosen to devote our lives to these questions in some form, unique to each of us, of how we're taking care of that which is around us, uh, particularly the natural world, because we know without it, humans are, are done for. So that's the first step. Early on, I got in so much confusion about these questions growing up in the 60s and in the South and dealing with lots of very confusing and upsetting kinds of uh, sense of the world. I came to, I just want to learn how soil works and how food comes about and ground myself in the physical and other parts of me involvement in understanding that. At least if I understand and know how to grow food or find it, that's kind of taking it back to basics. So I take it back to basics. Okay, then there's some money involved. I can buy my way through it. But if I know in my, if I understand these natural systems better and how to interact in a way that can uh, support humans, that's kind of baseline. So from there, you start to think about, okay, how do we do this together? How do we do it at bigger scale? How do we look at larger systems? I think that I'm speaking here right now to people who who understand and can identify with what I'm saying there. But the issue becomes human nature. And human nature can be a foil here. If if humans get wounded, we tend to be more damaging to other humans and, and other places. So we are dearly in need of a spiritual evolution right now. And before we turned on the tape recorder, he mentioned something I'd said before, and I want to repeat it, which is we need to re-feminize, re-indigenize, and re-inclusivize this whole world of money, economics, politics, and power. So if we go back to basics, we need ecological systems, and then we got humans, and we need to learn to live together better. And we're going to have a financial system that kind of dominates all of our transactions and a lot of our existence. Then we need it to have the right principles, and, and those principles need to be based on the best wisdom we can understand from watching the natural systems of which we come, of which we are a part, and upon which we depend and have no other alternative. So where are the new spiritualities, the new stories, the new shared agreements? Where's the leadership to help cultivate those, guide, teach youngers, enable the experiences? And so I think a lot of us are creating little pockets. The Back to the Land movement was there. The permaculture movement has a lot about it. Permaculture translated into societal issues has a lot to do with it. But we got to go all the way. We have to use our power, our influence, our wits 
to give everything we can to the commons, however we can best figure that out, and then develop next forms of education, spirituality, and uh, how we're going to live together. It's a tall task. So let's break that down a little bit. What uh, the fem- feminization, indigeneity, and inclusivization. So what is feminization of the economy? Well, what I mean by that is, of course, all of this is debatable, and it's and it's uh, you know it's representational of much deeper conversations and things that have to be thought of. But the feminine is the nourishment, the nourisher, the creator of next life and then the nourish, nourisher of that life. The masculine is the more able to go out into the outer world and defend and hunt and gather and, and make things happen. Gross overgeneralizations, probably not super effectively stated, but again, <laughs> I think the people I'm talking to here have, have a sense of what I'm attempting to say. So masculine principles and male domination out-of-control male domination has deformed and distorted how humans are engaging. I am making an assumption there that a more female-led or feminine principles-led society is a more generative, regenerative, and caring for the whole. So the refeminization or the feminization of the economy. Economy has become a very masculine principle domination, power, and control, and accumulation, and being the best, being the single, the most powerful, the best. That's not a good model in natural systems, and humans are a natural system, and we're proving that we have a much too male-dominated financial system. I'm not saying... Every woman has got you know, has got perfectly figured out values and behaviors. That's not the point. But by the gender imbalance that's been created is crushing the necessary balance. So I'll stop there. So what I hear out of that is sort of your your definition of feminization of the economy is just a nurturing approach to the economy. So that that totally makes sense because nurture is sort of the opposite of what happens in, in our current system. And nurture takes into consideration, as, as women often do, the feelings of everyone in the room, not just ourselves. I identify that as a male. Sometimes I'm not really thinking about how other, other people are feeling. I'm learning over time and, uh, and the more the longer I'm married. But yeah, so just a, a nurture economy. Excellent. I like that. I came across a quote regarding Darwin's sort of intended meaning of what he was saying uh, about survival of the fittest. I think it was from John Fullerton's Regenerative Capitalism Executive Summary, but he said, uh, it's the idea that Charles Darwin intended to convey in his often misconstrued statement attributed to him, in the struggle for survival, the fittest went out at the expense of all other rivals. What Darwin actually meant is that the most fit, quote-unquote, is the one that fits best, i.e. the one that is most adaptable to a changing environment. I thought that was great because I, I oftentimes can think of sort of Darwinian capitalism and the, the whole idea of survival of the fittest and how destructive that's been, but Darwin wasn't even saying that. The fittest was the most adaptable to a changing environment, and that's one of the things that's really key is, first of all, 
how are things changing, being aware, and then adapting. Because that's the key thing that brought down many past civilizations or the ones that thrived. I remember a conversation I had with Fred Kirschman a while back. He talked about, uh, talked about this. It's like, if you're going to survive and thrive, you have to sense what's happening and then adapt to it in a way that enables you to continue. Because if you adapt or try too late, then it's too late. So, um, okay, so now uh, on to the next one, indigeneity. With acknowledging uh, over-romanticizing is its own risk, when there were fewer people and all of us were actually connected to a place and we didn't have the ability to hop on airplanes and just go all over the world and have food from everywhere on the planet and all, all watch television and see every culture and all of that kind of thing, we adapted Similarly to what you're saying, we adapted to the conditions around us, and we had to learn and flow with the seasons, the salmon run, the migrations, when do certain plants grow, what parts of them are functional to us. And we had to share that knowledge and pass it down. Existence was perhaps harder. It would be harder, certainly, for those of us today to return to that. But the exploration of it brings forth a lot of principles. If you overharvest, you got to move on. And if you overharvest everywhere you move, then you're going to get in trouble. So it's wrong for me to attempt to interpret indigenous people in general, but particularly from eons ago. All of us are indigenous lineages from somewhere. There's no humans here that just came out, <laughs> came from another planet, I don't think. All of us were uh, once indigenous people, and we, quote, civilized and created advanced uh, versions of that, and then we got detached from those basic uh, patterns. So I guess the principles I would pull out of it are what's the proper balance? What's the proper use of resources? What's the proper amount of harvest? in order to keep things sustained? What do I need to know about the, the systems around me to adapt to those and fit in in such a way that doesn't bring down the whole system? And so the, I think those are the kinds of principles I'm talking about, which also lead to what happens 500 years from now. How do I keep the people going in this system? So I believe that there's a long-term and uh, long, long-term perspective that is much wiser than the immediacy of everything today. I was listening to an interview with Robin Wall Kimmer, who's the author of Braiding Sweetgrass. She is a Native American and a scientist. So she has a full understanding of sort of both sides of the equation and, and loves both and has sort of integrated them in a beautiful way. She talks about the all sort of members of the ecosystem or stakeholders are sort of the personhood of like trees and that kind of thing. And so she's like, you know, imagine if you're a tree and you can't move at all, then that creates a really different sort of mindset, if you will, on how you're going to interact with and get the nutrients and the things you need right there in the place that you are. And so, I mean, what we know about trees and their sort of energy transactions and, and the relationships with the thing around them is that there's a lot of symbiotic relationship with, you know, mycelium and with bugs and microorganisms and animals and other plants. And so 
taking again nature as a as a template or a sort of a, a blueprint for our educational model if we think about things in that way that could certainly give us a really good start in how to kind of reform politics even if you have to stay in one place and get along with who you're around as opposed to if things just don't go well you just pack up the car and move to the next city <laughs> then it creates a need to learn to listen and to resolve conflict in a way that is very different from the other alternatives. So, yeah, that's that's really good. And then inclusivization. Everybody's got to have a piece of it. I just said the thing about African-American wealth and U.S. and uh, Caucasian wealth. And if you're going to bend all the rules to have a few people get most of the benefits, that's not going to go well long term. It's just not going to go well. People won't stand for it. And not only will people not stand for it, but that those concentrations are like anything becomes toxic when concentrated too much. And so I kind of made this point earlier, but you concentrate money, wealth, and power too much, and it really does damage those who are holding that. And I'd say we have a very good example leading a formerly globally important superpower. And hopefully to be one again. The thing, and you mentioned this in our previous conversation, the reality that it's bad enough if this, if it's this system where the, the rich and poor, you know, the gap gets wider and wider and it's very dysfunctional that the poor are, you know, there's incredible suffering on that side. But it makes it sort of ridiculous when you look at the statistics on satisfaction, happiness meaningfulness in life and you find that the the people who have benefited most from this system the wealthy and the ridiculously wealthy are in no way happy and actually some of the poor and lower middle class actually have a lot more personal connection and and happiness and love in their lives than the the super wealthy so we've got a system where no one is being served even though the ones at the top are fighting tooth and nail to keep where they are and to increase it because they're not happy, they think a little bit more will make them happy. Well, I think we've seen that play out for long enough to, to realize that's not the case. So first of all, I guess, how do you reach the super rich with uh, common sense? There, there's a task for the 21st century. Well, I guess uh, I've decided to try. That's the point of uh, my book, and it's been the point of a lot of my work for my so-called career. And I'm comfortably affluent, and I would be known as rich in the scheme of numbers we've been talking about. The scale of wealth that (laughs) exists and that people can own these days, I'm pretty small time. But I have enough. I've got enough. Barring disaster, I can take care of myself, family, and things. I couldn't say the things I'm saying to you on this interview if I weren't already deeply inside myself committed to do all that I can. And that became the balancing factor so that I don't just walk around depressed and just don't want to be here because it's too too much of a bummer. So hope, possibility, optimism is a necessary ingredient for the human spirit in my view. I certainly need it. And underneath that is love. When I really think about the commodity that I care about the most, it is not money. It's love. If there's enough love, I'm likely to figure out how to get taken care of. I know how to grow food. Somebody will stick me in their back 
pack 40 and let me grow food, you know, and, 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 and I'll be okay. But when I've thought about the privilege that I have and what's the best use of it and how, how to be an intervention in the system as just one person, <laughs> when I, I just kind of assess, assess my own landscape and where do I have the possibility to influence things uh, for the positive that are possibly going to help more than growing a better garden alone? Just grow a good garden is one thing I could do. I'm taking care of soil, I'm taking care of whoever I'm feeding, I'm taking care of a lot of uh, other critters in there. So, my own analysis, it's not surprising, led me to that this concentration of power and, and wealth in the hands of a very few is wrong. It's a wrong system. It's poor ecology, and it's doomed in the long run. It will not survive effectively for very many people. So, therefore, my job, uh, the, the, the thing that I could take on because I can move around in these circles, I know some of the language, and I feel it's important work, and I've had now some decades to, to do my own life in a way that's, that's representative of what my beliefs are enough so now my task as a, a, an aging gentleman <laughs> is, uh, is to leverage that into whatever influence I can. It may be on the children of, it may be the spouses, it may be it's the individuals themselves. But it's also the system around us, the wealth managers, the bankers, the uh, people who benefit from whatever power and money I've accumulated – that's like the modern-day priests. They're the people who can help us get more money and more power. So that's where they've been given now really major role in the uh, spiritual future of humanity. So to reach those who are later stage in their power and control, their families, the younger parts of their families, and the uh, gatekeepers and maneuverers who uh, keep increasing and, and tending at power is a place not very not everybody can can access so I assess, assess my own uh, you know what do I believe in what do I care about what, what could I pull off and because I know enough about that world I've devoted myself to think about these concepts that I talk about in the book that there's trillions and trillions of dollars of wealth now and there's you can estimate, I do this for more of a, a metaphor than to be precise, but there's probably $100 trillion that's going to pass hands through death in the next 30 years globally. They say it's uh, uh, 30 or $40 trillion in the U.S. Uh, you throw Canada and uh, Mexico in, and North America's got 100, I'm sorry, got $50 trillion on its own that's going to pass hands next three decades. So... Our task for those of us that take this one on is how can that 50 trillion or 100 trillion shift into more generative, more feminized, <laughs> indigenized, etc.? How can that money start to be a better force for long term well being of the whole? So there's a nice uh, life work to take on. And uh, I, that's, I'm not alone in it. There are many people working on it, and any of us that are equipped for that particular arena have got a nice, big, fat task and a lot of positive outcome to influence if we uh, do a good job at it. Can you talk about 
some examples of how you're doing that um, through renewal funds? Renewal funds is a product that's representational. So we invest in organic foods, clean uh, household products, and environmental technologies. And we chose those areas to steer money into that we believe we're probably taking from more damaging uses, maybe just stock market portfolios. But we're helping people think about the choice you can make about how you grow capital. You, can, you really do have choices. So let's choose the kindest, gentlest, most constructive forms. So that's what the fund is. The fund, though, is a tangible, ultimately, when I'm dead and gone, symbolic or an example. It's meant as an example of what can be done. It's a drop in the bucket of all these trillions of dollars. But if more and more of us that are drawn to be in the financial world create healthier, more generative, better products – then things get better. And if the stores are full of things, that products that do less damage in the world, that we're making improvements. But the other part of the work, and thus a book, and a number of other activities that I do that are focused on bringing these kinds of moral and ethical and practical questions to those who do have a lot of financial power is uh, the other part of, of my work to uh, try to contribute in that arena. Uh, and I'm looking kind of at your at the website, and you've got investments, grants, collaborations. So you've got some different sort of uh, mediums of involvement there. Trainings and trainings and uh, gatherings, convenings, all 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 of that is part of it. So you're you're actually pretty deeply involved in the education side of things as well, more of a holistic education uh, context. It seems like for sure. So um, as far as resources, uh, maybe some pillars of sort of a basic education uh, in the direction that we've been talking about for the last hour. Are there any books, you know, YouTube videos, uh, anything that you would point uh, our listeners to as a way to sort of begin or further their education in regenerative systems? I think the first step is to decide what you want to learn about and what you want to know. And Given where we're at societally, technologically, and and such now, there is a vast world, uh, universe of learning and exposure to be done. But I really think it's about deciding what it is we care about and what we want to learn. So I like to stick to that more than attempting to put out an appendix or a, you know, where where's the one the the one stop fits all, and just say if you pursue these questions. I have one biblical quote I can can remember and really believe in. Seek and ye shall find. You know, if you if you get clear about the question and the intention, the rest starts to fall into place. Notice, choose, act. Well said. Thank you so much for taking a, an, another chunk of time, a longer chunk of time to talk. It's been a blast. I just really enjoy talking with you. And, and uh, yeah, you stimulate a lot of thought and, and new questions as well. And, and I love that. As we kind of wrap things up, are there any, uh, well, two things. One, final thoughts for the listeners and also where people can learn more about you. I'll start with the, where to learn more about me. So, uh, Joel Solomon. That's all O's in Solomon. JoelSolomon.org leads you to a whole lot more podcasts and 
talks and blogs and all all of that kind of thing. And it will also uh, you can go on there most social media and find uh, what else I'm connected to and the entities and things like that. Even somewhat where I hang out, if that's of interest. But um, I mean, not of interest to see me so much, but just to uh, know the kinds of places that are influencing me. So that's where to find out more. You can follow me on your your basic uh, social media. But what are my final words? My final words are, those of us that have choice, those of us that have affluence of education, a bit of financial resources, uh, getting to maybe choose where we live or how we live, where we shop, just remember that your name is on your money. It is a political act. I am responsible for the people and places that are damaged or restored and enhanced by where my money comes from and where all the products and services are that I choose and how I use that money if I start to to, to attempt to accumulate additional money. Our name is on that money. That will go with us to eternity, whatever such a thing is. Make the most meaningful choices that you can with every single act, particularly when you get involved with money. It really matters, and future generations will be studying what we do right now during this peak of human hubris. Thank you, Joel, and uh, I will definitely stay in touch with you, and uh, we will we'll maybe do a follow-up here sometime in the future as well. I'd love to hear as things progress. You can tell i got lots to say, and I really appreciate the opportunity. You've indulged me a lot. Thank you so much, and, and really best wishes on your podcast and, and your other work. And that was Joel Solomon. You can find out more about his work to return balance between finance, capital, economics, and earth care at joelsolomon.org. Find out more about Renewal Funds at renewalfunds.com. In addition to links to those and other resources, you'll also find a link to the podcast affiliates page, where you can learn about discounts to a permaculture design course, classes with Heather Joe Flores, herbal remedies from Susquehanna Apothecary, and some of the best hand tools you can find from Rebel Garden Tools. As this is the final interview of the year, and last before the holiday break, I'd like to leave you with three questions we'll revisit again in a few weeks. What do you care about? What do you believe in? How much is enough? If you'd like to share your thoughts with me directly, leave a comment in the show notes, or get in touch. Call 717-827-6266, Email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com or write The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. Until the next time, may you enjoy the holidays and spend each day considering your role and impact in the world while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.